the London Marathon, and you see one of the stations, for example, for 42,000 runners, full of plastic, and you see our station full of nothing, uh, it's, it's when you start to see, oh, this is really making a difference. And I think it's that's one of the, I, I suppose, the, the visions and, and the, the main things that we are trying to, to do, and it's when it, it started to make sense. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Well, friends, welcome to episode 38 of Business for Good. I'm coming to you straight from Sacramento, California, the heart of the shelter-in-place movement. It is now April 2020, and to put it mildly, the world is a dramatically different place than it was two weeks ago when we dropped the episode 37 with Lisa Dyson from Air Protein. Not only is much of the world now on lockdown to try to slow the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic, but my own family life is much different, as my wife Tony and I were moved by a desperate plea from our local animal shelter, which was being shut down for pandemic purposes to become an emergency foster home. Tony rushed to the shelter and ended up taking a nameless stray pit bull who has already shoved his very large head deep into our hearts. Eddie, who is named after my late grandfather, hasn't yet been converted from our foster dog to just our dog, but... If you asked a magic eight ball if this pandemic pup was going to become a permanent member of our pack, it would probably tell you that chances are high. I'll keep you posted on sweet little Eddie's journey. But before we get to this episode's interview, I just want to offer a brief thought on this pandemic that's disrupting our civilization so severely. Now, we all know this is not a natural disaster. It's a human-made disaster. Selling live wildlife of different species and crowded and stressful to the animals markets it's like playing viral Russian roulette, and public health experts have been warning for years that this is a tragically risky practice. Thankfully, China has now banned such regrettable markets. But it's easy for those of us in the Western world to shake our heads at the live wildlife markets in China. It's easy, that is, because such a practice is so literally quite foreign to us. Perhaps what's more difficult is to be honest with ourselves about what kinds of pandemics we may be brewing through our own risky animal use practices. And while the new coronavirus, crippling as it is, might have a somewhat merciful case fatality rate of less than 1%, we know that this catastrophe may just be a dress rehearsal for an even more serious pandemic that could take a more gruesome toll, akin to the 1918 global flu pandemic, which originated in Kansas, despite being named the Spanish flu, and killed at least 50 million people. When that day comes, it's very likely that such a virus will also have its origin in humanity's seemingly insatiable desire to eat animals, whether wild or domestic. The conditions in which we often farm animals today, we crowd tens of thousands of animals wing to wing or snout to snout, really serves amplifiers for viral pandemics. A year ago, I published an op-ed in Canada's largest newspaper about how the factory farming of animals increases pandemic risk. And then again this past week, I wrote about this topic, why raising fewer animals for food will reduce the risk of the next pandemic for Scientific American. You can get that article that I wrote for Scientific American in the show notes of this episode. I hope you'll share the story. We, of course, rightly lionize healthcare workers who are heroically working to mitigate the suffering and death caused by the pandemic. Well, we can each be heroes in our own right and try to reduce the risk of the next pandemic all together. So yes, we should curb wildlife markets, but let's not stop there. If we have the will to shut down our entire society for weeks or maybe even months on end, 
surely we have the will to slightly change our diets. And thanks to many of the sustainable protein companies like those that we featured on this podcast, that will be easier to do now than ever before. So now, on to this episode, which is also about changing our behavior. If you're listening to Business for Good, you likely don't need to be told how big the plastic pollution problem is, but what can we actually do about it? Well, two college students had an idea to make plastic packaging disappear. Rodrigo Garcia Gonzalez and Pierre Poslier were concerned about plastic bottles choking the ocean and they thought they could develop a material that holds liquids that wouldn't leave such a negative footprint after its use. Their big idea? Make soft packaging out of edible seaweed so you could essentially eat spheres of water rather than drink it from a hard plastic bottle. They began tinkering around in their kitchen, ordering ingredients from Amazon and Alibaba. With a rough prototype in hand, the two decided to launch a Kickstarter to see how much interest there'd be in their fledgling idea. Not knowing what to expect, Rodrigo and Pierre were blown away when in their Kickstarter, they raised about 1 million US dollars. As a result, their company Notpla, which is uh, short for not plastic and also not PLA, which is a type of uh, so-called biodegradable plastic, was born. Seven years ago, they started this company and today, They've now raised $6 million, including, interestingly enough, from Rupert Murdoch's son. They have dozens of employees now. They supply plastic-free water spheres to runners and marathons. Then they're even working with food giants like Unilever on packaging for their small mayo packs that will be made from their biodegradable seaweed and more. It's quite a tale for these two entrepreneurs who, by the way, credit HBO's Silicon Valley as part of their education on how to raise money from venture capital funds and how to run a startup. So wherever you're listening, I hope you're at least six feet away from other humans and surviving this very uncharted era that we're now living through. May companies like NotPlus succeed not only in their mission to reduce plastic pollution, but hopefully in inspiring others to invent technologies that leave a lighter footprint on the planet. As we're seeing, leaving such a lighter footprint wouldn't only be better for the non-human world, but also for all of humanity as well. I now bring you the co-founders of NotPla. Rodrigo and Pierre, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Great to have you guys on. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I've been reading about you guys uh, actually for years, and I remember seeing some viral video about your uh, pods that I think like runners in a race were getting, and it looked so cool. And I thought, geez, I would really like to try one of those myself as uh, somebody who's into running and, and used to do a lot of races as well. But uh, what uh, sparks me to really want to get you guys on the show now is it looks like you guys are uh, really making some real moves toward commercializing and, and raising some money. So first and foremost, congratulations on really moving forward with a company like that. Thanks. So tell me, you guys, what did it feel like for you? I mean, the story is that you guys were in school, right? And you had this idea. Tell me, like, how did you guys meet? Did you know each other before school? Like, what's the actual genesis of this company here? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so we met in London. Uh, Pierre is from France, and he was working before in uh, L'Oreal making packaging. And uh, I'm an architect by training, and we study both uh, this master course is called Innovation Design Engineering uh, in uh, two universities in London. Uh, it's, it's basically a mix of design and engineering, and it's over two years. And there is where we where we met. Uh, we were working on on different projects together, and this was one of them. And after we finished, we 
we got a bit of support from the from Climate Kick, that is a, a European Union accelerator, and, and from there we we decided to to keep going with this project that originally thought to become a business. Did you have an interest in the environment beforehand? Did you think like plastic was some problem that you wanted to tackle? Like why this? Yeah, I think that um, we definitely were um, like many people very frustrated by the fact that there's literally no alternatives. It's very hard to get the products that you want um, packaged in a different way than what's available on the shelf. And I think that uh, without being kind of like super deeply involved in like many different societies or uh, things related with the environment, we were certainly um, frustrated consumers. And I think from like a designer perspective, this was a bit of a, a bit of a challenge, a bit of an opportunity to think of something different. But I think as well, we have been working a bit before with waste on different ways, uh, separately, but before we know each other. <laughs> but I was building, uh, for example, architecture with plastic bottles and melting plastic bags to, to make some toys. And, and I suppose this interest from both of us, it came uh, even earlier than, than this. So I think we, had, we, are all, uh, we are both quite conscious about how we consume and how we live in this planet. So you were both interested in perhaps beforehand using plastic bottles as as some rather than throwing them away, it's using them as like building materials. And then you decided that you would try to create an alternative to plastic bottles in the first place. That's really what happened. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you're in school. You guys are now talking about what it would be like to create something that would be an alternative to plastic. How did you come to the idea of using something like seaweed to do this? So yeah, we were we were starting basically with that base of how we could package water, and we were looking on different uh, natural materials or alternatives that had been doing this uh, in one way or another. So we were testing different natural materials, different hydrogels, things like tapioca seeds, uh, different hydrocolloids, and then we end up with this uh, technique that was quite successful. That was using seaweed. That had been used uh, for a while now on other industries, uh, and and we we did a first proof of concept, a first prototype, and we were able to to somehow uh, push it out there and and test it and iterate over it, and and I think that was a bit the beginning. Yeah, and it was very uh, humble beginnings for um, for us in terms of setup. Uh, we didn't really have a, a access to a lab, so we were just prototyping things in our kitchens and ordering um, all sorts of weird and wonderful powders of the, the internet from Amazon and Alibaba. So it was very kind of like hands-on experimentation. So, and you guys were still students at this point? Yeah. Wow. So you're experimenting in your own kitchens. Uh, is it a sodium alginate? Is that what you're using? Yeah. So it's one of the type of uh, seaweed extracts that uh, are available for other applications. And we ended up looking at Lots of different ones, um, like things extracted from brown seaweed, like like alginate, but also things coming from green seaweed or red seaweed, and trying to kind of like mix and match different uh, extracts to create something that would be a little bit more like a like a packaging or or like a fruit. And even inside of sodium alginate, as you mentioned it, there is quite a lot of different, uh, I suppose, variations that you can inside the whole world of sodium alginate. That there is quite a lot of. Uh, different type of seaweeds that you can use to to get sodium alginate or different type of molecular weight. So it's it's the whole I, I suppose it's a whole world in itself. One ingredient. 
Interesting. So is it, when you say there are other applications, is sausage making one of these, like when they're using like an alginate to coat a sausage with, is that one of the other applications that you would type of, that you would borrow this type of an idea from? Actually, there's a lot of use of, of seaweed extract in so many industries around you. It's kind of crazy when you when you don't really know about it. But it's certainly used a lot in food, especially a lot in dairies. Like a lot of creams are actually uh, like incorporating seaweed extracts uh, as a thickener. It's used in cosmetics for a lot of uh, different uh, like lotions and different products used in pharmaceuticals um, and in lots of uh, uh, other ways. So it's kind of crazy when you realize that seaweed is actually already part of the kind of industrial landscape of everyday objects. Ah. One news that I didn't know about it, I discovered a few years ago when we jumped into this period. Uh, for example, some uh, some seaweed material is used to make the pimento inside of the olives. Mm. Uh, you know, there's these uh, olives that have some pimento inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, Generally, if you put just pimento, that will make the water around the olives really cloudy uh, and consumers won't buy the olives. So that's not actually pimento. That's kind of like a pimento, remade pimento using seaweed. So it's a, they have a lot of different really weird applications. How, how fascinating. So just tell us how the process works then, guys. Like, um, you know, you have water. How do you get the water into this seaweed extract and cause it to stay in some type of a, a shape that you know could then be consumed by somebody who doesn't want a plastic bottle? Yeah, so um, basically we had to come up with both a uh, like material formulation and a machine um, to create the, the the packaging as you're you're, you're referring to, and so um, we we had to uh, both use some of the properties of uh, of the seaweed extract to form this kind of jelly-like material, uh, but also a machine that would be able to like do all of these operations altogether. So what we're actually doing is, um, uh, without revealing the secrets, is to actually kind of create the like the membrane around the the water or the content that we are packaging all at once. And it's quite a like a, a special process that we had to, um, to kind of come up with and to then make a machine for. And um, it's it's quite interesting because it's a it's a very efficient process in terms of energy consumption. It's uh, all happening at room temperature, so there's no heating like on on plastic, um, and uh, it can be quite compact. So uh, the idea for our machines is to be rather small than large so that we can actually produce re- relatively locally. Uh, so the idea is that the material has a, a really short shelf life, uh, so it can't really handle a very long supply chain. But on the other hand, it biodegrades very quickly. And so by having uh, this material combined with this local manufacturing technology, we're able to produce and deliver the solution uh, very quickly while minimizing the impact on the environment. So what I had read about what you guys are doing is that you're taking the the casing and basically enveloping the water and then uh, freezing that water. But you're saying it's at room temperature. So is there a freezing process for this or no? Uh, so we started uh, really early on with the first steps was using some freezing. We realized almost in the first year that freezing was not a way to go because it's not uh, somehow uh, an industrial process doesn't make sense. To, to freeze water to be able to coat it. But it was one of the early things and one of the things as well that we share. Uh, 
with with a open community if that makes how to do it. But we we understood that if we wanted to jump this to industrial process, the process should not involve freezing, and the current process that we have doesn't involve freezing at all. Mm, okay, uh, that's an, uh, certainly an interesting pivot. So uh, you had mentioned that these are have a short shelf life uh, and that they're biodegradable. So the product is perishable. So two questions about it. One, you know, how long can it last? Does it need to be refrigerated? Um, like, how long can it last before it's no good? And then also, you know, how do you prevent hygienic problems? You know, like if if there's a hygiene problem on the outside of a plastic bottle, it's no big deal because you're not going to presumably be licking the outside of the bottle. But with these, of course, you're going to you know perhaps put the whole thing in your mouth. So, uh, you know, how long can it last? Does it need to be refrigerated? And how do you how do you keep it hygienic? I can answer first question. It lasts. It really depends on the content that you have inside. Uh, so I think the shortest shelf life that we have is with fresh orange juice, that it only lasts a few days. Uh, and then we have things like water or other contents that they last probably on the range of a couple of weeks or a bit more. And we have things like ketchup or sauces that lands, uh, it lasts around a month. And then we have dry products that we can potentially package as well dry products that if you don't have uh, really high humidity, it, it can last not forever, but like can last quite a lot if you don't have uh, humidity and, and bacteria around it. So it, it really depends on the, it's like a fruit. We always try to find that analogy. It depends on the content uh, and the water content on the content and the bacteria of the content and the oxidation of the content, what it will relate quite a lot in terms of shelf life. Uh, in terms of uh, hygiene, it's really similar as what we always refer to fruits. So basically what we're trying to do is more similar to fruits in all the different aspects than that what is to plastic uh, in terms of how you consume it as well. So it really depends as well on the application. In some cases, the product doesn't need to be eaten. Like For example, we do a lot of things with sauces, uh, like ketchup, mayonnaise, for takeaway deliveries. In that case, the consumer just tear it and, and use it and discard it. doesn't consume a membrane full of ketchup, if that makes sense. In other cases, for example, when we do things in marathons or running events, uh, the product either gets, we call it uh, nip and sip, so the product kind of like the consumer tears a corner and drink from it, really similar to what you do from a can or from a, a plastic cup, if that makes sense. And in another cases, yes, it's a sampling product where consumers... Is, is, a, is a size of a sip, and in that case, the consumers will eat it all. In that cases, we, we make sure it's handled as if it was a food product, so the same way they will handle any kind of fruit or any kind of pastry, etc. And depending as well on the application, we we don't normally do it, but like we can do uh, put a double layer, which that means is that you can peel off the product. Oh, interesting. So you can peel it and then so and then discard some external portion of it that would also be algae. Yeah. So if you imagine, for example, an orange or a mandarin, you have small segments inside of a bigger membrane. So groupings is something that, that we can do as well. And it doesn't need to be alginate. It could be any other uh, material. Uh, mm. So at the moment, I think we have over 75 different formulations of materials. Wow. Some of them, most of them with hydrocolate, but not all of them uh, with alginate. Some of them, yes. Uh, but, and, and as well, as I mentioned, kind of like each of, each of the specific ingredients is a whole world. And we have been working quite a lot with, on, on the different extraction process 
and and to try to specify as well what what material works best because we believe there's no one material for everything it's it's a bit like again fruits there's different skins of fruits for depending what kind of fruit you are consuming so it's a bit what we are trying to try to do, do almost a, a specific product or specific membrane or specific uh, film or packaging mm-hmm. for specific content okay. that match the life of the content so coming back to the to the first question we try to uh, match the shelf life of the content with the shelf life of the packaging that I think is the most problematic thing of the packaging nowadays where you consume something that is not going to last probably maybe more than a few weeks and you consume it within a, a few minutes and then the packaging is going to be there for uh, hundreds of years so I think that's the main the main issue in terms of mismatch of uh, shelf life of the product and shelf life of the packaging yeah I think about that often um, you know sometimes like if I um, when I'm, for example, uh, offered a, you know, a plastic cup of some beverage and how, you know, I'm going to drink it and it'll take me less than one minute to drink, but it will be around for millennia. Uh, it'll be around and we'll probably, you know, it might, who knows, maybe it'll even outlive our own civilization. And, uh, it just seems like such a crazy thing to do. Like plastic is such a, is such a uh, great material because it's so functional. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's just so detrimental. So finding alternatives to it and then also finding ways to actually use and maybe even degrade the current plastic that we have out there seems really imperative. So uh, let's talk guys about your company. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how you're doing it, but uh, about how you're making the products. But in terms of the actual mechanics of a company, you know, when you guys were students, I don't know what, whether you were thinking this was going to be become your career, but you did some crowdfunding. And tell me about that. How did it go? And uh, what did you tell people? Yeah, so I think that um, we did crowdfunding um, out of uh, like, uh, like lack of uh, other options, which is quite funny because... Um, um, at that point, we we were pitching a lot of angels, a lot of uh, traditional investors, and no one really wanted to be kind of like the first to, to to back us. There was a lot of kind of question marks around whether or not this was uh, a little bit too crazy. And so um, after quite a few months of unsuccessful kind of like pitching, we we considered uh, crowd uh, crowdfunding as uh, one of those kind of like slightly new and 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 maybe a little bit risky ways of of funding our our business, um, and um, I think that uh, what happened to us was was really uh, like incredible. We didn't expect to have such a uh, like a big wave of support, yeah. but basically within uh, like the first three days, we uh, we fundraised the whole uh, campaign. We, we doubled our target um, and we received uh, uh, 850,000 pounds from 900 investors all around the world. And at the back of that, we had wow. um, like quite a lot of uh, uh, like media awareness. We had some videos on social media that got 100 million views. It was just a little bit crazy for a, a small team uh, working from from Starbucks or from our living room, um, so it was it was really um, kind of like unprecedented in terms of uh, of attention that we received, and I think that it was super exciting to see that uh, maybe traditional investors were not so keen to back us, but like normal people from the internet were really keen to be part of the of the story and to kind of like see more of those alternatives reaching uh, market. 
Why do you think it is that people were so enthusiastic about it and that you were able to raise so much from so many people? I mean, you guys are two college students. You have this idea. It seems like a cool idea, but lots of people do crowdfunding. They don't have nearly that much success. So what do you think it is that helped you guys to break out like that? I think to me, it was the product itself. It tells a story uh, and it sparks a lot of imagination. And and I suppose it's there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, a, a wave against plastic nowadays, but like, there's not too many solutions out there. And I think something that is that crystal clear that like you can eat the packaging itself, so it's not not plastic anymore. I think it's it's already giving a quite uh, positive signal to to yeah, to the people. And I think people engage on it really really straightforward and, and, and really in an honest way. Wow. So that's how you guys got started with this crowdfunding, but I know that more recently you've had uh, a, a much larger round. So tell us what you have done recently on the fundraising side and where you guys are at on your path to commercialization. Sure. So uh, we got, following the the, the, the crowdfunding uh, round, we were able as well to be backed up by Sky Ocean Rescue. That is a fund uh, by Sky, the media company that is focused on uh, backing up alternative solutions for fighting the plastic problem. So we were the first investment. Uh, later on uh, this Christmas as well, we we close uh, another round of investment uh, with more, uh, let's put it out there, uh, I don't know how to say, more traditional investors, uh, which which as well probably is going to help us towards the development of of our business quite a lot for the next couple of years. And in terms of commercialization, what we are uh, at the moment, working on is uh, on Oho, our main product, the first the first product that managed to package liquid. At the moment, we have three verticals, so we do a lot of running events, and we would like to keep doing those. And at the moment, mostly we are focusing in UK because uh, the the way that we operate. But we expect to to do more and more uh, events outside and start to look on how to expand. We do a lot of things with sources, and and as well to do that. Uh, but in a much bigger scale with partners like Just Eat and Unilever. For people who are listening in the United States, they may not know what Just Eat is. So tell us, what is Just Eat and what are you guys doing with them? So Just Eat is uh, uh, like takeaway food platform, a bit like Delivery Hero or Uber Eats. Um, and uh, they are uh, one of the largest in, in Europe. Um, and... They know that uh, like ordering a, a takeaway uh, delivered to your home might not be the most kind of like sustainable option at the moment. A lot of uh, uh, like deliveries come with quite a lot of plastic, cutlery, bags, uh, and uh, in our case, uh, like the sauce sachets. And so from uh, from quite early on, uh, they've been really big supporters of what we do, giving us a, like basically a platform to test, giving us access to their restaurants and really enabling uh, us to try and improve our solution. So basically, we've been doing um, quite a few uh, kind of like trials always kind of like uh, growing in terms of scale and, 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 and complexity uh, to provide plastic-free uh, sauce sachets to their consumers. And most recently, we teamed up with a sauce manufacturer. So in that case, it was uh, Hellman's uh, from the Unilever group uh, to basically work on this together, a sauce manufacturer, a sustainable packaging company, and a takeaway platform. And just to take it from there and just give you the full picture of the company and the portfolio of products, we have uh, two other products. One is a coating 
So basically, we use uh, all our learnings that we have in terms of membrane to make uh, paper uh, greaseproof and waterproof uh, for different applications. And recently, we have been uh, trialing our first box together with, again, Just Eat, this delivery platform, with restaurants, instead of delivering food in plastic boxes, they deliver it in uh, paper box boxes, line it with NotPla. That is our material. And the third line of products that we have been uh, trying as well, it's, it's films, basically heat sealable films that can substitute any kind of uh, flexible package uh, to contain different products from uh, solids or food products or hardware to semi-liquids as well. Hmm. So how many people are working at the company now? So currently we are 25 wow. and we have chemists and engineers, designers, a commercial team and a production team. And we expect this year to grow significantly as well. How much total money, including the crowdfunding, have you guys raised? The latest round was 4 million. And before that, we raised about 2.2 million. So that's 0.2. If you had gone back you know, to the starting of your company, let's say seven years ago, uh, you guys are in school and you could have looked forward and thought that you guys would have dozens of people working there. You raised millions of dollars. What would you have thought? Well, I think that it's certainly uh, like a little bit of a crazy adventure. We're super happy to uh, to see that it's progressing and that we can finally start to have some impact. Um, I think that what really drives uh, us is to finally kind of like start putting a dent on this plastic uh, problem. And and it's super exciting to see that now we have a team of people who are also sharing this kind of like uh, common purpose of really trying to do something about this problem. So it's it, yeah, it's it's super uh, exciting to be at the forefront of what's possible to do in terms of um, challenging traditional packaging and seeing that we actually are seeing a lot of traction uh, in the market for this. And I will add to that that we feel at least I feel incredible gratefulness for for all these uh, people who joined the team and are pushing super hard to make this change. What's your ambition? Like, What do you hope to achieve with the company? I think that um, there is such a disruption in the market of uh, packaging that we kind of see ourselves as potentially becoming the tetra pack of sustainable packaging, becoming this kind of like uh, leading uh, company that really give you uh, the like the the certainty that when you use this packaging, you're not having a negative impact on the environment. And I think that um, hopefully we can grow our catalog of solutions so that we can have many, many different kind of like uh, solutions that correspond to different applications and um, make single-use packaging a thing of the past. Yeah, we normally say we try to make plastic packaging disappear. And to a certain extent, I think, for example, when we did last year, and we're going to do it this year again, the London Marathon, and you see one of the stations, for example, for 42,000 runners full of plastic, and you see our station full of nothing, uh, it's, it's when you start to see, oh, this is really making a difference. And I think it's that's one of the, I, I suppose, the, the visions and, and the, the main things that we are trying to, to do, and it's when it, it started to make sense. For sure. So uh, tell me then, like, if you think about that marathon, Rodrigo, the plastic cups, I don't know how much they cost for the other stations. I'm sure that they're a very small cost. What's the cost of your product compared to those? Uh, it depends how you see the cost, because, for example, uh, races, normally they get paid 
to have uh, products. So they normally they don't uh, they don't pay for products. They get uh, products sponsor. So it's quite hard for us to compete against that. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I guess it, I guess it'd be hard to compete against get them getting paid to do it. But you know, exactly. but let's say take like the you're working with Hellman's Mayo. Then if, if you are gonna think about what the packet of Hellman's Mayo costs, the actual packet, what is the cost for you guys to make that little packet? But coming back as well to the example of the marathons, if, uh, for example, they they get that uh, for free, but then they have to pay quite a lot for disposal. So they pay, it's, it's quite considerable. It depends on the race, so I wouldn't say a, a number, but like they pay much, much more than what you expect per runner, per cleaning, than what you will expect them to pay for water. So, so that's a really interesting angle that helped us convince quite a lot of race organizers to adopt our solution. Nice. So it's, it's not just the price of, of buying the product, but like the full, the full solar system. And regarding price of, of the product, it really depends what we are doing and which kind of numbers we are doing. It reflects at the moment, uh, yeah, for example, on the sources, we are slightly premium, depending on which kind of package you compare it to. But if you compare it to the really cheap uh, single sachet, it's not like the premium that uh, I suppose is semi-rigid. We are, we are a bit more expensive than that. Uh, we are conscious of that. And, and I think it's... It's part of, of our journey. It's not something that we are super uh, focused at the moment in terms of reducing prices, but uh, but as well, we are not too far off. Okay. One one way to to think about it is that it's quite interesting is that um, essentially the, the the raw material seaweed is very renewable. Uh, it grows very fast. Some of the seaweed we've used grows up to a meter per day. Wow. So that's really crazy. Um, and uh, we are using um, like the like the extracts, which is a bit what flour is to corn or something like this. So the material has really the potential to be quite cost competitive. At the moment, what we don't have is scale and super kind of like uh, uh, large fleets of machines and uh, tens of years of optimization. So Obviously, we're not competing with plastic, which has basically 70 years of free R&D from around the world. But when you look at the basics, uh, seaweed really has the potential to provide this when we get there. And I think that's the really kind of like comforting uh, thought about like uh, the whole world kind of switching their plastic habits to natural materials is that uh, it can really stack up. Okay. So speaking of corn, uh, you know, a lot of the plastic alternatives, so to speak, right now are are made out of corn. It's like this uh, corn-based plastic called PLA. And so why is what you're doing better than that? Yeah. So uh, thanks for bringing it up. That's that's a classic kind of like misunderstanding of uh, like biodegradable packaging in a way. Uh, PLA is a plastic. Uh, it originates uh, from like uh, cornstarch, but it's definitely a, a plastic in its chemical composition. Whereas our material is a polysaccharide, so it's just not plastic. And um, when you look at PLA, one of the like one of the good things is that it doesn't come from oil. But if you look at the end of life, um, basically to be able to biodegrade such material, you have to collect it sort it out from the rest of the trash and put it in a industrial composter 
which is basically a, a very specific facility that heats up at very specific conditions the material and then when you're at like temperatures above 70 degrees it will start biodegrading but those conditions don't happen anywhere on the planet naturally so it means that if this material doesn't end up in an industrial composter it will stay in the ocean or in landfill for the same millennia that we were talking about earlier. Um, and on top of that, one of the issue with a lot of new uh, kind of like bioplastics is that they are very similar looking and they behave very similar than a lot of traditional plastics like PET. And so um, even if a very small portion of uh, PLA ends up on a PET recycling scheme, it will have a great deal of impact on that whole kind of like batch. And so as little as 1% could completely destroy the properties of uh, a batch of recycled PET. So for the recycling scheme, it's a very big headache to be able to kind of like sort out PLA from PET in their input material because they're virtually uh, similar looking and there's no easy way to sort them out. Yeah, we had uh, we had Tom Zaki from uh, TerraCycle on an earlier episode of this podcast, and he really railed against these what he called so-called biodegradable plastics that said, you know, just like you're saying, they're really not biodegradable for the most part, and that, um, you know, it's just you know, focusing on either reusing plastic or creating truly biodegradable plastic would be a, a better bet for sure. Um, so in and that's part of the play in, in, on on the POA term in your name, right? Not plus, or not so not only not plastic, but also not POA. You got it. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So you know, Rodrigo and Pierre, um, it's very rare, at least that I see companies that have uh, two co CEOs. I know that you guys are co-founders, but you're also co-CEOs. So how does that work out for you? Like, how do you differentiate in decision-making? What happens when you guys have a disagreement? Like, how does that work to have co-CEOs? Yeah, I think that um, in a way, it's, uh, I agree that it's, it's rare because um, in a way, the, like the traditional kind of like investors don't like to see this around for too long. But because of our funding history and because of our kind of like uh, initial crowdfunding, we got a chance to kind of like prove that this was working for NotPla and that was the best way to for NotPla to grow uh, for a while. And now we have uh, that track record to show that this is something that is really working and, and valuable for the company. So we're quite a, quite grateful for that kind of like uh, that period of, of having the chance to prove ourselves. Um, I think that we have a... a a very kind of like uh, good synchronization in the way we think. And I think that uh, if we hadn't like connected that way, it would have been really hard to launch this company altogether. Um, and I think that it, it really is um, like something that is uh, kind of like fundamental and, and quite rare. We have a, a very collegial approach to how we uh, like do decision making in the company as well. And that means just not just between the two of us, but we also really involve uh, the rest of the team to make sure that we are uh, making choices that um, that everyone uh, can contribute to and that everyone is uh, uh, is feeling like they are a part of. Um, and I think that um, it's it's really a, a process that um, is very helpful to um, sometimes having to um, formalize what you think 
to explain why we should do it one way or another. Um, there's a great deal of respect in the way we, we do that, but there's also like something really helpful about having something not sitting just in one brain alone, but having to kind of like jump from one to the other and having to be explained. So I think that, yeah, we've, we've really kind of like, uh, started to master, uh, this, uh, this relationship and, and make it work for Notpla. All right. So moving down to the end of our interview here, guys, you know, you, you have led quite an impressive journey so far going from students coming up with an idea to help solve the plastic problem to raising millions of dollars and now running a company with dozens of employees. Um, I, I presume you guys are still in your 20s. Is that correct? 30s. <laughs> 30s. Okay, welcome to your, welcome to your 30s. Uh, I just left my 30s, so um, you know. But you know, you're, you guys are, are of course uh, still young, but you've had um, a, a lot of success so far. A lot of success that many people would really admire. And so, made the students as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't starting after my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, were there any resources that were useful for you guys? Were there any, you know, people, mentors, books, speeches, anything that was actually helpful for you guys on this path that you would recommend to others who want to try to replicate some of the success that you've had? Actually, put it that way. I, I you know, thought about it like that, but like, I think the university itself is a great resource. If you consider it as a safe space or a safe time that you have to make mistakes and not have too much of a pressure to fail. And I think that had been one of the I suppose main successes that we that we have uh, collectively shared, mm. uh, I suppose. And I think we're still both of us quite linked with academia in a way. So I I keep uh, an involvement with uh, different universities, teaching design, and and peer as well uh, links on, on different workshops, etc. So I think it's it's one of the greatest, I suppose, uh, places in society to to come up with ideas and to be able to share in the safest place. Uh, with colleagues and professors and researchers, and and I think it, I, I love that. And uh, maybe in a slightly uh, less serious way, but uh, I remember like when we started watching uh, Silicon Valley, the show. Um, it's it's kind of like in a very ironical way, but it's kind of like t- teaching you uh, uh, business one on one in a in a fun kind of like twenty minutes episode way. <laughs> and, that when we when we started, uh, we were in the incubator of uh, uh, Climate Kick. Um, there was a lot we got from the mentors and from the workshops, but just like from like uh, that show, we we learned quite a few tricks. So uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, there's a lot of truth in the jokes and and everything. That's so funny. You know, I, I've only watched, I think, a few episodes of it. I was on a plane one time and I was watching it. And I can assure you that I felt exactly as you did. I thought, ah, oh, you know, there's, there's a lot more truth in this than one might think, uh, for sure. That's uh, that's pretty funny. Um, okay, so uh, also, guys, wanted to ask you before we go here, then, you're focused on the plastic problem. Presumably, there are lots of other ways to make the world a better place, maybe even including other companies to focus on the plastic problem. But if you're not going to do something else, you're going to focus on this. Are there any other business ideas to do good in the world that you hope somebody else will take up the banner with and will run with? Yeah, sure. Uh, for me, I will say uh, I was working before this project, and it was actually was one of the beginnings of this project on uh, making artificial clouds. So looking at the system of water and how nature delivers water and how we could potentially uh, make uh, fresh water. So I think it's something that I'm quite passionate about, and I would love to to jump up more into that. 
And that's interesting. So making artificial clouds for water harvesting, like for fresh water harvesting or for, you know, reflecting sunlight back into space to prevent uh, global warming? No, to water harvesting and transportation. Huh, interesting. So you would make art, you would basically create clouds that would be fresh water, obviously, and then you could harvest them and use utilize them. Um, that's a really interesting idea. I look forward to learning more about that. Yeah, but basically, is that like trying to try to copy how nature transport water? That is not through pipes. Yeah, uh, how uh, water, uh, nature gets water uh, that is through the sea and through using the sun, okay. and try to use those uh, same systems to. Yeah, to create something similar to a cloud that could potentially deliver fresh water on those places where it's needed using mm -hmm. the resources that nature gave us. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a great idea. I hope that uh, there will be some future entrepreneur on the show who comes back on the show talking about her or his water harvesting cloud creation startup that they're doing because they were inspired by by what you were saying there, Rodrigo. So uh, hopefully that'll happen. I'll look forward to it. But I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, and of course, I'll be rooting for your success. So thanks so much. And uh, I can't wait for Notpla to come to the United States. And I'll look forward to getting some packet of ketchup sometime with it. And, and and get a chance to squirt that on my food. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.